So have you ever had your feathers ruffled? You know, ever been agitated, ever been aggravated, annoyed, frustrated? Well, there's some folks in the San Francisco area that have uh, been a little agitated and annoyed the last few days. They are struggling with having their feathers ruffled, ironically, by ruffled feathers. This weekend in the Bay Area and a number of neighborhoods, there has been a huge flock, many flocks, of wild turkeys. I mean, they're everywhere. They're on top of people's roofs. They're all in their front yard. In Massachusetts, there's some wild turkeys that have started attacking people. In California, in the San Francisco area, they're being aggressive. I mean, these are, these are turkeys. One guy said, man, you know, a 30-pound bird is flying at you, and it's huge. It's, it's a little nerve-wracking. So this is a problem. It's not, not just casual turkeys, you know, taking normal walk rail pictures out in the front yard. These turkeys are causing problems. There's a lot of them. But in the neighborhoods, they, they can't really hunt them because there's too many of them. I mean, even if they were to hunt, you can only kill two of them with the turkey season. So they're kind of stuck with, with all these turkeys. So the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, they've given a little bit of advice. One of them was to get a dog. That would help, you know, stick a dog out in the yard, and that will keep the turkeys away. But there was a couple of other suggestions they made that I thought were interesting. One was put motion sprinklers in your front yard. Yeah, a motion sprinkler. So when the turkeys came by, it'll spray them with water and scare them off. Right, that might work. One of the other bits of advice they gave was to open up an umbrella. <laughs> Undoubtedly, you open up an umbrella, it kind of you know, makes the, the turkeys nervous because if you're just standing there, they've gotten used to you. So if the turkeys have gotten a little too used to humans, and get an umbrella and open it up and you know, shoo them away. I guess that'll work. I don't know. I feel bad for those folks, man. I mean, it's, it's cloudy with a chance of turkeys everywhere they look. And there's just turkeys everywhere. Sometimes, though, the reality is, is that there are things in life that are annoying, aggravating, frustrating, things that stress us out. And it's a lot worse than just pesky turkeys, right? So is there any way that those things could be helped? Is there a way to, to steer us away from the worst ruffles of life with more than just motion sprinkler heads and umbrellas? Is there any help for the worst ruffles in life? Well, there is, and we're going to see it today by looking in in a moment in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Luke 13, beginning with verse 31. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him. Well, just at what time? Well, just at the time that Jesus had been teaching that the door to heaven was very narrow. Just at the time that, that Jesus was teaching that there are many people, deeply religious people, who thought for sure, they were confident they were going to be at the, the banquet table in the kingdom of God. In fact, what Jesus says is this. He says, when they get to the door, the only message they'll get from heaven is, I, I do not know you. That's, that's harsh language, right? But, but Jesus never misspoke. He never said the wrong thing. So at this time, when Jesus was teaching these things, 
some Pharisees walked up and said something to him. Well, who are the Pharisees? What are Pharisees? Well, Pharisees are deeply religious people. They believed in the God of the Bible. They, they weren't some you know, weird religious cult. They actually believed in the God of the Bible. And Pharisees, as we look at their life, they weren't just deeply committed religiously. They were deeply committed to the church. They were deeply committed to the church. And most of them were middle-class folks. They weren't you know, religious scholars off in some tower somewhere. Most of them owned their own businesses. They, they knew people in the community. They had influence in the community. They had influence in the life of the church. But the Pharisees had one knock against them, at least one important knock, and that was they were addicted to traditions. They were addicted to rituals and to rules. Now, all religious traditions are not bad, and all contemporary religious ideas are not bad. But either one of them can become difficult, dangerous, and sometimes even evil. When? Well, when they are pushed and pressed and preferred over the truth of the Scriptures. One day Jesus was teaching, and he quoted from the Old Testament describing how God viewed folks like the Pharisees. And he said this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They worshiped their traditions about God, but they didn't actually worship God. William Barclay, in his commentary, pulling information from the central text of Judaism, the Talmud, wrote about some distinguishing types of Pharisees. Here's a few. There's the shoulder Pharisee, he wore all his good deeds and righteousness on his shoulder for everybody to see. There's the wait a little Pharisee. He always intended to do good deeds, but could always find a reason for doing them later, not now. There was the humpbacked Pharisee. He was so humble that he walked bent over and barely lifting his feet so that everyone could just see how humble he was. Then there was the always counting Pharisee. He was always counting up his good deeds and believed that he put God in debt to him for all the good that he had done. And there's the fearful Pharisee. He did good because he was terrified that God would strike him with judgment if he did not. And then there was the God-fearing Pharisee. He really loved God, and he did good deeds to please the God that he loved. Now, I know that none of us hurt ourselves in that list, right? <laughs> I mean, none of those things would ever apply to any of us, right? Now, the sad thing is we probably all heard a little bit of us in that list. But here's the thing. The way Jesus talked to the Pharisees, we need to move away from that list. We need to move away from those types. But what about the last one? I mean, the God-fearing Pharisee? I mean, that, that sounds good, right? I mean, that one sounded okay. Listen, here's the thing. To... Fear God, to, to have an awe and a reverence of God, is a fantastic thing. See, a God-fearing Pharisee could still have an awe of God, a reverence of God. They could still do wonderful things for God, to please Him, to honor Him. And yet at the exact same time, those same God-fearing Pharisees ignored Jesus and rejected Jesus. It's just not enough just to fear God. 
there must be a connection to Jesus. So at this time, when all of these things were being discussed, when Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees came up. We don't know exactly what type of Pharisees they were, but, but they came up and they said something to Jesus. And what did they say? Verse 31. Go away. Leave here. For Herod wants to kill you. Sound like pretty good Pharisees, right? I mean, they're, they're looking out for Jesus. They're, they're trying to protect him. They sound like they're pretty nice. Well, we don't know what their intentions were. We're not really sure what they were after. Luke doesn't give us a whole lot of detail here. But more than likely, these Pharisees were probably just trying to get rid of Jesus. They were just trying to get him out of the area. Why? Well, see, people were starting to listen to him and they were not listening to them anymore. They used to be the ones that people came to, and they would tell them how they needed to follow God and what they needed to do. And all of a sudden, all these people, they were starting to listen to Jesus. They didn't like losing their voice. You see, as a pattern, Pharisees hated Jesus. But it wasn't just Pharisees. John MacArthur writes, from his birth, Jesus was the target for murders. Think through that historically. It's true. In fact, it seems like almost everybody wanted him dead. Those to whom he brought salvation wanted to kill him. I mean, that makes sense, though, when you think about Jesus, right? It makes sense that a lot, a lot of people would hate him and a lot of people would want to assassinate him. I mean, especially when you think of what Jesus was like, right? I mean, what was Jesus like? Well, he was kind. He was good, he was giving, he was gracious, he was wise, he was loving, he was patient, he was compassionate, he was merciful. I mean, we all hate those things in people, right? And in addition to that, Jesus, he also made the blind to see, made the deaf to hear, and made the lame to walk. It sounds strange that he would have so many people who would hate him and want to take his life. Politicians hated Jesus. Religious leaders hated Jesus. Complete strangers hated Jesus. Some of his own friends hated him. Some of his own family members hated him. Why? Why would they hate Jesus? Well, primarily it was because of his message. And what was his message? Well, his message was this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, turn, yield humble yourself. Change your passion. Change your allegiance. Change your devotion. Change your attitude. Change your conduct. That's the call. And that didn't sit right with the Pharisees. And if we're really honest with our own hearts, it really doesn't sit right with us. <laughs> How dare anybody ask me to change? You know, hey, I'm, I'm 45. I'm 55. I'm, I'm 85. Why should I have to change? Why would Jesus demand that I yield to him? And see, that's the, the very nature, though, of the call of Jesus. And it's why it always rubs us wrong. Because it's more than just a demand for religious morality. It's a demand for personal surrender. It demands that we confess that we cannot save ourselves. It demands that we have to confess that our, our family ties or even our church membership will not get us into heaven. The baby in the manger grew up to be a man 
who consistently and constantly preached a message of repentance and confession and surrender. And that message has not changed. That message will not change. The only way for a person to enter into the kingdom of God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. So, these Pharisees came up to Jesus, told him that Herod was coming after him. And how did Jesus respond to their warning? Listen to what he says in verse 32. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. <laughs> Go tell that fox. <laughs> That's kind of interesting. You know, we, we don't see Jesus really ever talk like this. Very interesting that, that he would say this in this way. I mean, you know, over the next few weeks, you know, as you're walking through the mall, the shopping center, or getting in your car, you're going to hear the, the words of Silent Night. And at one point in there, it says that Jesus, old baby Jesus, he was tender and mild. Well, he must have grew out of that, right? I mean, right here, he didn't sound very tender and mild. So why would he call Herod a fox? Why would he talk about Herod this way? Well, let's think through this a little bit. What sounds more powerful to you? A grizzly bear or a care bear? You're going to have to do some math on that. Just think through it a little bit. All right. Or what about this one? What sounds more powerful, a fox or a lion? Now, if a fox has rabies, is that fox extremely dangerous? Yes, completely. If a fox doesn't have rabies, could that fox still be dangerous? Yes. Could you also maybe fight off a fox? Yes. Now, on the flip side, with no gun, no Gunther Gable Williams, no Clyde Beatty, just, just you, one-on-one, -on -one, could you defeat a powerful lion? Let me answer for you. No, you know, you couldn't. See, Herod was a fox. Jesus is a lion. See, it's a completely different conversation. Herod was the son of, of Herod the Great. Herod the Great hated Jesus. He, he tried to have Jesus assassinated when he was just a baby. And then his son tried to have him assassinated when he grew up. So like father, like son. And Herod the son, he was the ruler of the area around Galilee. He ruled there for about 40 years. In many ways, he was a very powerful man. In fact, he was powerful enough that he should have been able to do anything he wanted to to Jesus any time he wanted to, which is why it's so defining that Jesus calls him a fox. You see, Herod, he was a fox of Galilee. But Jesus, Jesus is the Lion of Judah. It's, it's two different conversations. If you were playing a rock, paper, scissors with somebody, right? And you were rock, and, and they were scissors. All right? Your rock is going to crush the scissors. That's, that's how the game works. So Herod, he was a pair of scissors, and Jesus is the rock of ages. See, it's not the same conversation. Herod, he was a fox. He was sly. He was cunning. He had a measure of authority, but he was still kind of a puppet of the Roman Empire. But Jesus was no puppet. And that's why Jesus sends a message back through these Pharisees, back to Herod. And what is that message? Listen to it again. 
Go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, what does that mean? Well, another day, Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He said, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, Jesus was not some sweet hippie from heaven who just came down to to help the world sing in perfect harmony. No, Jesus is the king who came to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is the king who came to sacrifice himself for sinners like me and sinners like you. Jesus came on his own terms. Jesus died on his own terms. Jesus left on his own terms. Jesus will come back again on his own terms. This is who he is. And how did he become this king. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 14 says this, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. So tracing the family tree back to the Old Testament promise that a great king was going to come out of the family tree of Judah. All right, so Jesus, check, he's got that. But he wasn't just a king, Jesus was the Messiah king. He was a a set-apart king, a a consecrated king, a once-and-for-all king. There had never been a king like Jesus. There will never be another king like Jesus. Why? Why is he so set-apart? Why is he so consecrated? Hebrews 7, 16 gives us a picture. Who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. Jesus was and is the Messiah King, and the only reason he is the king above all kings is because he is the only king who has ever always been endless and indestructible. Indestructible. Somebody might say, "Ah, I don't know. Is is that true? I mean, indestructible? I mean, isn't there some part of this story where Jesus, wasn't he crucified outside of Jerusalem? I don't know, that that sounds pretty destructible to me. How could you say he's indestructible? Well, let's think through this a little bit. I was reading an article recently about companies and their slogans and their taglines that they put out there in their ads and stuff. And in this particular article, you know, it kind of focused on a couple of different ones. And I'm, I'm going to give you those, those two. Here's the first one. You're in good hands with Allstate. And here's the second one. We are farmers. Thank you. Thank you. I thought you might leave me hanging. That was fantastic. I love that. Now, let me make a quick disclaimer now that I've given those two taglines. I grew up in an Allstate house, all right? My dad has been with Allstate at least 49 years. I'm thinking maybe longer than that, but he's been with Allstate for a long time. And when I moved to Arkansas, my friend Tommy hooked me up, and and I was with Farmers Insurance for a while. And so I can just say that my experience with Allstate and Farmers were both fantastic, good companies. I never had a lick of trouble with either one of them. But the point of this article and the reason they brought up these two ads is, is to make a point. Listen to the ads again. You're in good hands with Allstate. We are farmers. Which one is harder to live up to? 
That's what the article is talking about. When you, when you put your tagline out there, you put your slogan, be sure it's something that, that you can really live up to. See, here's the thing. There's no company on the planet that will ever do anything perfect all the time. It'll never happen. Your company will not do that. No other company that you buy from will ever do that. There is no company and no government and no spouse and no child and no pastor and no person who will ever do anything perfect. So quit keeping score. We need to quit keeping score. Because I promise most of us do not like when people keep score on us. So let's be careful. There is no perfect person. There is no perfect company. But the ad and the article, was, it was just asking the question, if you're going to put something out there, put something out there that, that maybe you won't have any problem with later on. So the, the ad folks at Farmers, what they do? We are farmers. <laughs> Not much of a promise, right? It's like, hey, we're, we're just going to be who we are. You know, we're farmers. We're, we're going to be who we are. It's not a bad slogan, you know. In fact, it's really what the church should be. I'm not a a big fan of church slogans and taglines. Some of them are just plain cheesy, first of all. And and then sometimes they're they're worded in such a way that it's like you can't really really do it all the time. You know, you can't really keep up with that slogan in the community. You can't really keep up with that. You'll, You'll fail every now and then. That's why you will occasionally only see one word on some of our documents, and that's just the word together. Just, just together. We are together for the gospel. Now, are we perfectly together? No, not perfectly together. Look, I think Holland Avenue Baptist Church is a super cool church. I just, I think it is. But it's not a perfect church. And the preaching, I think it's better than completely crummy, you know, but, but, but it's not perfect. Our music, it's majestic and wonderful, but it's, it's not perfect. Our children's ministry is amazing, but it's not perfect. Our student ministry is, is way cool, but it's, it's not perfect. Our senior adult ministry is super fun, but it's not perfect. Our building is, is fantastic, and it's well-kept, but it's, it's not perfect. The sound system is way upgraded, but it's not perfect. The bulletin, the newsletter, it's informative, but it will, neither one of those will ever be perfect. See, those things are not perfect, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is perfect. It's perfect. And so if the church staff and the church members and the visitors and, and anybody else, as we do life together, if we can be in and for and with the gospel, then we will always be who we're supposed to be. We will always do what we're supposed to do. We will always be engaged as active participants in the kingdom of Jesus Christ because our togetherness is centered in one thing, and that is his gospel. Together for the gospel. Jesus didn't have an an ad slogan. (laughs) He didn't have anybody writing catchy phrases for him. There's just kind of this one word that kind of defined him. And that word was indestructible. Indestructible. Endless indestructible. Was Jesus executed outside of Jerusalem? Yes, he was. In a sense, was was Jesus physically destroyed outside of Jerusalem? Yes, he was. But there was never a millisecond that he was ever going to stay dead. That was impossible. I love how Peter said it. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. I, I love the word impossible. See, the reason that death is the greatest fear in any poll and in any survey that you'll ever see is because death is so commanding and so final in its power. But because Jesus was and is God, even though he was sacrificed for the sin of the world, because he was and is God, there was never a moment where death was going to keep power over Jesus. That was impossible. See, Jesus was not just a, a random baby born in Bethlehem. Jesus was the Messiah King. And he was born for the purpose of dying. And his death, that power of death, was only going to be for a moment because his life was endless and indestructible. It was impossible for him to stay dead. But what does that have to do with you? What does the indestructible life of Jesus have to do with you? Well, if you're a believer, it means that death will only have power over you for a moment and nothing more. I love how Charles Spurgeon talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He who undertook to pay our debt is suffered to go free. And we go free in him. We go free in him. Death conquers for a moment, but only a moment, because the power of the indestructible life of Jesus has captured us, so we go free in his indestructible life. Herod was kicked out as a leader around 39 A.D., he was exiled 4,000 miles away from Galilee in, in modern-day France. His reign was not endless. His life was destructible. Why? Because he was a fox in Galilee. But Jesus was and is the Lion of Judah. Herod, he was a pair of scissors. But Jesus is the rock of ages. The good doctor might have put it this way. Would the king be cornered in a box? Would the king be cornered by a fox? Not in a box. Not by a fox, not in a house, not by a mouse. The king would not be cornered here or there. He would not be cornered anywhere. The king would not run in fear and scram because he's the king, the great I am. We don't just worship a baby. We worship the king. Herod's father, Herod the Great, he was not able to kill the life of Jesus when he was a baby. And the son, Herod, when he grew up, he was not able to take the life of Jesus. He was a fox. He was a puppet leader. No, the life of Jesus was always endless and indestructible. It was impossible for him not to meet his goal. And that's the message he sent back. Go tell Herod, I will meet my goal, and he will do nothing to stop. So what was the goal? 
What was the goal that Jesus had? Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Huge. So, so if we've truly surrendered to Jesus, if we've been saved, if we've been brought to God, then the power of the indestructible life of Jesus, the life that Herod could not do anything about, could not stop, could not sway, could not end, that life has an impact and an influence on your life and my life today. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, the indestructible life of Jesus matters in your life on Thanksgiving Day, beyond Thanksgiving Day, on Christmas Day, and beyond. It matters every second of every day. How? How does that indestructible life matter right now? J.C. Rowell puts it this way. We should remember that duties are ours. Events are God's. We should therefore endeavor to leave things to come in God's hands and not be over-anxious about health or family or money or plans. Don't you wish I would have stopped with Dr. Seuss, right? Well, that's easier said than done, right? Do not be over-anxious about health or family or money or plans. Ah, that's, that's easier said than done. It's easier preached than done. It's easier heard than done. It's easier to, to put that quote on social media with some praying hands and feel good about it. But, man, it is hard to do. It's hard to do. But listen, just because something's easier said than done doesn't mean that it's not 110% true. It is. Raul goes on. There is no such thing as chance, luck, or accident in the life of a believer. That's a huge sentence. There is but one needful, one thing needful, in order to make a believer calm, quiet, unruffled, undisturbed, in every position and under every circumstance. Straight up, those are some big words, right? To make a believer calm, quiet, unruffled, undisturbed. I would like to know what that is. You know, boy, I, that's one that I really need. So, what is it? This is what Raul says that one thing is faith and active exercise. Does that mean we should go get a treadmill and exercise more? Active exercise? That's what he's getting at? No. No. What this means is that if we pull the language that Jesus uses in his response to Herod, it means that today and tomorrow and the next day, we will not listen to the foxes around us. We will not be ruffled by their words. We will not be ruffled by their threats. We will not be ruffled by their criticism. We will not be ruffled by their grumbling, their whining, or their complaining. Rather, to have faith in active exercise means that we will listen to the Messiah King, to the one whose indestructible life has power for us in every single moment, and we will listen to him say to us over and over again, 
If the Son has set you free, then you are free indeed. If the Son has set you free, if the Messiah King has set you free, if the great I Am has set you free, then you are free indeed. You're free.